Inside the Post-Dispatch. Hi, Liz. Hi, Beth. How you doing? I'm doing really well. Yeah, I'm very excited about our guest today. That's good. You know, I, I realized the other day that I don't think I asked you back, how are you doing? Oh, that's okay. I'm always doing well. You know? Right. I, I know. know. But how me. else do you start a podcast? <laughs> yeah, I guess asking how we're doing. Um, well, after that very <laughs> thrilling content, uh, we're super excited to welcome the St. Louis Post-Dispatch's new executive editor, who is very familiar with St. Louis and the paper. Alan Ashkar worked as an editor for the Post-Dispatch from 2005 to 2013, and now replaces former executive editor Gilbert Bayonne as the lead editor of the newspaper. Prior to returning to the Post, Ashkar worked in South Bend, Indiana, and was most recently the regional editor for Gannett Papers in Northern Indiana. Welcome, Alan. Hi, thank you. No one asked me how I'm doing, but I'm doing great. Thank you. Since you asked yourselves, well, we I'm doing great. Got to it. That's the That's introduction. Right. We have to introduce got you so it. people know who you are. We can't just okay. be like, and how are you, mystery guest? <laughs> Every time we introduce a guest this way, I always have to ask, is it strange to have your resume read back to you like that? Uh, I'm I'm used to it at this point, but it is strange. It's sort of like you're it's in, it, you're encapsulizing your life and your career in a sentence or two. It's a bit odd. Seriously. I always find it weird to write paragraphs like that and like have to refer to myself like Beth did this like right. it's very strange to me yeah Miller so. then worked at well and then you have the uh, am I being too boastful <laughs> uh or is it is this accurate is it boastful and what do I live about yeah it's it's very odd actually but you've been here for about a month now mm-hmm. can you talk a little bit about why you decided to come back to the post-dispatch so can we first get on the record on air that our goal is to get a record number of downloads on this episode? I just want yes. that out there. All right. Yes. So any listeners must share this because that's what we're aiming for. <laughs> Let's just get, I want that on the record on air. Okay. okay. What was the question? I'm sorry. <laughs> the question is, why did you come back to the Post-Dispatch? Oh, right. Yeah. So uh, two reasons, really, primarily. Um, one is... We were here eight years before my family and I, three kids and my wife, and we really enjoyed living here and in this region and always wondered in the back of our minds if we would come back, if the opportunity arose. And sure enough, reason number two, it was a great opportunity. This is a historic, outstanding, great newsroom. Uh, It's an incredible challenge and honor to be tasked with helping keeping it that way and doing great journalism moving forward. And it's hard to say no to an opportunity like that. It's daunting, it's intimidating, it's Mm -hmm. honestly scary, but at the same time, incredibly exciting. Uh, And so those were the two two big reasons. Yeah, Liz and I are pretty terrifying. (laughs) (laughs) Yikes. Uh, Well, I hope not. Um, But kind of thinking about, you know, the the work that you've done over this past month and the vision that you have moving forward at the paper, how do you prioritize the changes that you want to make? um, And, you know, how do you then kind of put a plan together to to move forward? Yeah, so we have to first, uh, you know, it's you can't answer that question without looking at the larger media landscape. So what is happening with news consumption, news reading habits, especially at the local level? Because national news trends are different. It's hard to draw a lot of comparisons other than broadly. And so what is happening at the local level? Well, we know we've got a growing audience in the digital space. We are growing digital subscribers at a healthy rate. We know more and more people are venturing that way, whether it's the website, the app, social media, or our e-edition, which is an electronic replica of the print edition. 
And we also know, this is not a shock to anyone, that the print edition does not have the same subscriber base, not likely to, to be turned around just because of technology and our modern age. And so you can't answer that question without saying we need to understand how we're playing the digital space, how do we do it better, uh, and provide people the information that they want. And there's good news in that because one of the things we have found over the last several years in the local media landscape People want good content. They want hard-hitting content. They want revelatory content. They want enterprising content. They want investigative content. They want good, exclusive, local content that no other news organization can provide them. Well, the Post-Dispatch, stltoday.com, can provide that. And so understanding that what are our audience wants in a digital space and how we can provide it, and I think there's a lot of good news there, as I mentioned. That's not to say that we want to walk away from print. We still have tens of thousands of print subscribers, so it's not to say, oh, we're not going to pay attention to that. It's that balance between how do we make sure the print edition is still something that people would be interested in, but understanding that we also have to put even more focus and energy on how we're playing the digital space. And then the second part of that answer is what I started to touch on, which is is the St. Louis Post-Dispatch an energizing, aggressive, enthusiastic, hard-hitting newsroom? It needs to be. Uh, not just because it makes it more interesting to work here, but also because it's what this community needs and demands from us. Mm-hmm. So that's the kind of newsroom that we have to create. There needs to be electricity and energy and understand that we have a mission, which is to provide great, exclusive, enterprising content that should be exciting for everyone who works here. That includes playing in various media forms like audio, <laughs> like podcasting, um, but, but across all the different tools that we can use, video, social media, et cetera. So that is my answer to your seemingly simple but actually quite complicated <laughs> question. Do you have specific goals for the newsroom or for the paper in general that you want to see? I mean, there are some specific goals. We want to grow subscribers, mm-hmm. right? So that's an, that's an easy one in terms of you can measure that, you can set numerical goals on that, sure. We want to grow audience in general, obviously grow our social media audience as well, grow audience for all of the work that we do in all of our, our platforms. So yes, I think in general, what is the goal? We want to grow our audience. We want mm-hmm. more and more people to know where we are and to see, hear, and look at our stuff because we think we're doing good stuff. Um, the, and then the other goal, it goes back to what I said is, are we providing, what are the categories of news coverage that the Post-Dispatch owns and will continue to own and will make a mark on? How, what are the areas where we can provide exclusive content that no one else can provide? How are we distinguishing ourselves in a very crowded media ecosystem? I believe we distinguish ourselves with great journalism, which... Honestly, the the form is different and the medium is different and the way we transmit it is different, but it goes back to the basics that have been tried and true for decades. Tough reporting, going through documents, boots on the ground, shoe leather reporting, great interview skills, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The things journalists have been doing for decades can play very well in the digital age because it leads to great journalism. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I think we we had a recent example of that with the latest installment in the ongoing Rams coverage Mm -hmm. uh, and the NFL and Stan Kroenke um, document releases. 
and that the Post-Dispatch was able to procure and share with the community. Sure, that was a great example, which by the way, the wheels on that started rolling well before I got here. So I get no credit for that, but <laughs> um, which maybe I should I take credit for that? No, I shouldn't. <laughs> Never but, don't take credit. Well, yeah, right? <laughs> maybe I should have played that differently. No, but but it's it, it it's exactly the example. We, my colleagues here worked for months to secure those records and it involved a lot of pushing and pulling and asking and we got them and and while that story how the rams left st louis and the ill feelings uh it has already been told this gave some really new insight especially about the role the nfl played and the communications that occurred with the nfl that story obviously got lots of attention went national as it should exactly that was enterprising that was hard-hitting that was us being persistent providing good exclusive content. It's a good example of what I'm talking about. Could you talk a little bit um, about your role? I know some readers get confused about your role on the editorial board because um, it is another area where you know we have a lot of readers and I have a, with our editorials, try to determine and say, here's what we think should happen as an editorial board. And Liz and I are not on the editorial board. We should make that yeah, clear. Yeah, there's a very um, stark difference between the newsroom and the reporters that do work there and then the editorial board. It's a huge difference. It's a very important distinction. I know it, it confuses people because certainly in print and even on the website, the material runs next to each other. Mm. And so it looks like it's one unit and one team. It is not. So, And this is true uh, at virtually every newspaper in the country. The editorial board or the editorial team is separate from news. They do not influence each other's work. Whatever the editorial board decides to write has no input from anyone on the news staff. They often will react and write about things that the news staff has produced and published, but there is no influence between these two areas. So news is not telling editorial what they should write about, and editorial is certainly not influencing what news should write about because we're trying to keep opinion separate from news coverage. Mm -hmm. While I oversee both, I do not really have much involvement with editorial. Uh, I want them to be separate and doing their own work. I will step in as needed. Um, But I know it's confusing for a lot of folks, and a lot of folks will see the opinions of the editorial page and assume that the entire newsroom reflects that opinion or it speaks to the work that everyone newsroom is doing. It doesn't. And part of our job is to continue to explain that to people because I understand it's confusing. Um, and it's a distinction we need to keep to making the community so they, they understand that. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and kind of shifting gears a little bit, one of the first changes you made or that was made public was shifting how our features department covers arts events in town. Uh, tell us a little bit about how that coverage is shifting and why you think that will ultimately benefit readers and listeners, as well as art institutions. Yeah, so we're shifting various uh, parts of our coverage, not just how we do reviews of the arts. That just ended up being broadcast in social media and got a, a lot of attention. So let's be clear on this. Which is what social media is so good at, right? Absolutely. <laughs> That's right. Um, so we decided that we were no longer going to do reviews of arts performances, theater and symphony, for example. That does not mean we are not covering those institutions anymore. Reviews are just one form of coverage. There are stories in advance, previews. There are profiles you can do. There are trend stories you can do about the arts. 
We just said one leg of it is no longer going to be part of our arsenal. And why is that? We looked at the metrics, the digital numbers. They were not being extremely well read. We felt our energy was better put to use on arts coverage that could get more readers. And if we do that right and more readers are reading our arts coverage, in theory, that should be better for the arts community rather than continuing to pursue a type of coverage that not very many people were reading anyways was not getting out to a broader audience. I mean, the real goal here, I mean, the ultimate goal, if a home run would be doing an art story or art stories that maybe people who aren't consider themselves arts enthusiasts would read and go, oh, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Now you've broadened the audience right. beyond what's there now. So that that's tough to do, but that's really the ultimate goal here. And so... But, but the bottom line distinction is we're not ending arts coverage by any stretch of the imagination. We're still going to have coverage of theater. We're still going to have coverage of the symphony and other arts, the visual arts, etc. It's just one portion of it that we decided to, to walk away from. And you mentioned metrics and analytics and as an influence of that decision. That's one of the things about digital that can be both a blessing and a curse. You know, you can look at the A1 of, you know, the front page of a print newspaper and see all the stories there and assume, well, everyone who picked up this paper read each of these stories. But looking at the analytics, we know that not everyone who comes to our homepage reads every story at the top of our homepage. Can you talk just a little bit more about the importance of analytics in making these types of decisions for coverage? Analytics can be incredibly revelatory. You can learn so much. Great, great tool. At the same time, you have to be careful because it'll also be a blunt instrument and you have to be careful. It's like any piece of data or any statistic. Mm -hmm. How you slice it, how you look at it, the context, the amount of data can all be skewed in different ways. It could also skew your own judgment if you're not careful how you read it. Mm -hmm. And so you have to understand with analytics, am I looking at enough data? Am I looking at Two months, two years, two decades worth of data. That informs your thinking. Am I looking at the the right way to analyze numbers? Am I drawing the right conclusions from it? And those are all tough questions. I believe in the one case we talked about, we did do all of that and came to the right conclusion. If we're wrong, we'll, we'll pivot and change our minds. Uh, none of this is set in stone. Uh, we believe we made a decision that was a smart reading of that data. But yeah, at the same time, to your point, Beth, you got to be careful about making broad decisions based on what might just be a blip right? or not an accurate reading of what that data is really showing you or telling you. And so it's not a day-to-day thing. You're looking for broad trends. Mm-hmm. The broader data sets you have, the better. It, it, like I said, it's, it's with any statistical analysis that you're doing, the same rules apply. Yeah. Well, I think coming out of the pandemic, which was obviously a very challenging time for local arts institutions, uh, to be able to be a little bit more proactive than reactive in our coverage makes sense, you know, to encourage people earlier uh, in the life of an art installation, an exhibit, a you know, production to get out and enjoy it than maybe two weeks before it closes, which you might have to do with the review sometimes, given the life of these things, uh, makes total sense to me. More people will have the opportunity to go and to enjoy it. Exactly. And like I said, that's ultimately the goal is... Who are we really serving? What is the end goal by continuing to do one arm of coverage that really for a long time now has not gotten a large audience? Well, if we pivot that time, that energy, to, and those resources to a different way of covering, 
is that a win-win for everyone? I believe it can be if we do it right. Uh, and so, yeah, ultimately that is the goal. So, uh, and and if it's not, and we fail, then we reevaluate. Um, n- none of these, none of these are set in stone edicts. In the, in the digital space, especially, it's hard to say this is what we're going to do, and, and we're going to do it forever. It's you know things are changing so quickly. You always have to reevaluate, and we'll reevaluate this like everything else. Yeah. Would you consider yourself like a digital native? We've talked a lot about digital, um, but it's not necessarily where your career started. No, no, I'm not. So when I started my career, uh, the internet was still, you know, uh, an interesting creation. And I was a few years into my career before it really became a thing. Mm -hmm. And so I remember the early days of the internet. Um, and the early discussions about how it would affect news coverage, and man, were we wildly off on our <laughs> guesses back then. Uh, I don't think anyone really fully ungrasped how the news industry would change it back in those early days. Right. And then social media came in and disrupted everyone's expectations. And then even before that, uh, or along the same time, iPhones, mobile phones, mobile technology changed everything. And so... You had the internet that comes along in the mid-90s and then the understanding of websites and blogging which and chat rooms, which were the big thing at the time. <laughs> then mobile technology changes everything. Social media changes everything again. Uh, and then there have been other pivots. Uh, social media itself is now evolving and changing within that ranks. And there's someone in a college dorm room right now building some technology that's going to disrupt the news media yet again. And so the the pace of change has right. been remarkable. I mean, the reality in the newspaper industry is for about 135 to 140 years, it was pretty steady and stable. I mean, we had the same expectations, roughly the same goals. The last 20 years have been head spinning. I mean, it's been the pace of change has just been remarkable. So, but it's exciting in the sense that it's made this job, I think, more exciting, mm-hmm. more more energizing, because it's like, wow, you you know, you have to constantly evolve and change. But the other huge upside for us is we now reach more people than we ever have in our history. That's exciting. We have a bigger audience now than the Post Dispatch has ever had in its entire existence. That's cool to think about. It's a big responsibility. It is, definitely. And I think you were speaking to the kind of the fluidity and, you know, adaptability that is intrinsic in this work now. And I'm someone who's kind of only known the industry that way. Uh, That's kind of maybe the generous take on (laughs) um, how one could describe it. Uh, But to your point, there's also a lot of opportunity there. So I'm curious, just from a selfish standpoint, coming from the digital team, (laughs) um, you know, do you have specific ideas for ways that the post can flex and grow, maybe more specifically on social media, since we were just talking about that and the way that our relationship with our audience has changed there and is kind of constantly changing. So this is turning to all about you and Beth. Is that where we're going with this? A little bit, yeah. All about this. Why are we your favorites? Yeah, yeah, exactly. You're still listening uh, at this point. And you're okay with that, right? (laughs) Um, So uh, let's talk about social media because I talked about how that's evolving. I mean, you know, we could have this conversation every year or two and it'd be different. Uh, Let's just talk about that that particular slice. TikTok changed the game. Mm -hmm. Uh, It is rapidly becoming the dominant social media form. Okay, that means video. So we know that Instagram is now pivoting and putting more emphasis on video because they're trying to compete with TikTok. Meanwhile, Facebook, or Meta as they're now known, 
has basically said, uh, Zuckerberg came out and said, yeah, I mean, you know, F Facebook is fine, but I'm putting all my attention into other ventures. And, and he's kind of not making Facebook as much of a priority for his own company. And you go, okay, so what does that mean for Facebook? Twitter, meanwhile, I don't even know who owns it anymore. <laughs> is Elon Musk going to own it? Is not going to own it? Are they struggling? Who knows? I'm so, going out on a limb. He's not going to own it. Yeah. Right. Well, who knows? <laughs> I, I, I'm done trying to predict that. But Too, too mercurial to be able to right. tell. So we know that Twitter and Facebook, which have been dominant forms of social media for the news industry, are appear to be changing um, and may soon have new ownership. Uh, current ownership seems to want to be pivot to other priorities. So we need to understand and recognize that. Meanwhile, video on social media through TikTok and Instagram stories is, is growing in popularity by leaps and bounds. Mm -hmm. So what does that mean for the news industry? We need to understand that if we want our content to reach as broad an audience as possible, to reach a younger audience, um, that we need to understand that social media is changing and how do we pivot our content to meet the audience where they want to be? Those are big questions. A video can be hard. It's a completely different skill set than text stories. So it's something that we need to, I know many news organizations already, Washington Post has a very active mm -hmm. TikTok page, for gold example. Gold standard of TikTok. It is news. at the moment, the gold standard <laughs> in terms of news TikTok. Um, so, okay, what any lessons to, for us to learn from that? Other news organizations have been experimenting and we will have to do that as well. Um, so, yeah, social media is a good example of how as technology changes, as priorities change, and it affects reader habits because that's really what we're getting at is how does it affect reader habits? Right. How do we have to change to meet the audience where they are now? Is that change? I'm sorry. Is that change on kind of all levels of journalism what keeps you interested in, in the field? Or is there something else about journalism that keeps you invested? I mean, I think at the end of the day, you're getting into journalism because the work is the potential of the work excites you in the sense that you have the power to change your corner of the world mm -hmm. in some way. You have the change, to, you, have the, you have the power in journalism to expose, to enlighten, to entertain people, to educate them, to shine a spotlight on something that is either interesting or corrupt or needs to be changed. That's why you go into journalism because it's a chance to do really interesting work that informs a large audience and maybe just maybe if you do it right makes your community just a little bit better because of the work that you did that's why you go into journalism and so um the other reason you and i think as part of that is accepting that how you accomplish those big goals may change mm -hmm. the medium you use you send that information information to is likely to change the way you tell your story may have to change i think that's exciting i think it's not just a chance to do great work but to understand that it may involve experimentation or trying new story forms or new technologies i think that's exciting and that's why i think working in newsrooms in this day and age is probably more exciting than it's ever been sure there have been massive challenges we know what's happened to the revenue model and the business model but this idea that we need to experiment and embrace new ways of telling stories and still trying to do work that can change our community for the better, it's really exciting. And the job can still be really, really fun. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Well, I think that kind of experimentation, and again, when we're talking about social media and, you know, having the flexibility to be able to hopefully grow your audience, right? Maybe that's into a younger audience or maybe a more just social media native audience is super exciting. Uh, and, you know, selfishly, I don't want to speak for Beth, but I think I uh, can that for our team, that is so much of the excitement and thrill and obviously then the challenge too, right? Is how to well, keep growing and, and finding those audiences. Yeah, and here's the problem, especially with younger generations, is is cutting through the clutter of people's everyday lives. Mm-hmm. So people's lives are more cluttered than ever been. And by that, I mean their attention span. Yeah. So people <laughs> often ask me, well, who are your competitors? It's other local media outlets, right? Like, yes, but there are others now. My competitors are Spotify or Netflix or Facebook or TikTok. Mm-hmm. They're stealing people's attention. And we are fighting for people's attention. We're trying to prove to people every single day why they should be looking at our content and why our content is more valuable to them than maybe other ways of spending their time. So, yes, we are trying to meet the audience where they are, but we're also fighting for their attention span. And there are so many distractions that their phones provide them on an hourly basis. So that's the other challenge. Am I competing with other local media outlets? Some of them, yes. I actually think we could partner with some of them, to be honest with you. That's a whole other story. (laughs) But I do think our other competitors is all that stuff on their phones and their screens that's stealing their attention. Yeah, definitely, especially among a younger audience that doesn't get that paper on their doorstep. Their parents don't get the paper delivered every day. I mean, when I was a kid, we would get the paper um, after Sunday mass. We'd go to the donut shop and pick up the Sunday paper. And I wouldn't read just the comics. I'd read the front page and I'd read the opinion section. And I don't think families do that quite as much anymore. That habit has fallen fallen off. I once talked to a consultant. He was not from the newspaper industry. In fact, his background was, I want to say, the music industry or some other industry. But he said, he said something very interesting. He said, do you know how many companies would kill for the brand trust and brand awareness that a local newspaper has? And I thought that was interesting because all oh, newspapers are struggling, newspapers are dying. And he's like, but you've got that brand recognition and that brand trust. And I thought that was, and he's right. I mean, the local newspaper in most communities still carries this sense of this is what they do. We can trust the information. We know it's been vetted. We, we, we recognize what it is. We know what it is. Uh, now, as you get to younger generations, is that brand loyalty as strong as with old generations? No. And that's what you're getting at. Right. Because anyone of a certain age understood, oh, there was the daily newspaper in a box or in the drugstore or on their doorstep. The screen generation, the generation that grew up on screens, didn't see that. Now, they know the Post-Dispatch. They know ICL today. They know roughly what we do. But it's not quite maybe that level of loyalty that the older generations have. And that's a challenge for us is how do you break through that? Yeah. And what about readers or or audiences that might say back, you know, we've never had that trust in the Post-Dispatch. It's historically ignored our communities or undercovered our communities. Is that something that you want to make a priority as well? Yeah, and I uh, that's fair criticism. And uh, But I always, in those conversations, want details. Right. That could very well be a fair criticism. Give me some examples of what you're talking about. Give me some insight. Um, 
sometimes as we talk it through, we may find out that it was just a wrong impression. That may, actually, maybe we had covered this community better than they thought. Oftentimes, yeah, they help us see a massive blind spot mm-hmm. in our coverage. We're not perfect. I'm sure we have blind spots. I mean, I don't know what they are because they're blind spots, right? But I'm sure they're there. And I love it when the community points those things to uh, points those out to us because how else are we going to recognize them? So it is often a fair criticism. And I always say, give me details. Let me know exactly what you're talking about because that's what we need to ultimately ultimately fix it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know we occupy uh, that role, one of those roles, I should say, in the newsroom as the digital team. We engage with our audience when they have questions. If they, you know, call us out for something very rightly so or fairly, we're going to respond and acknowledge that. I think that openness and transparency and accountability, especially maybe among a younger generation, can really go far. You know, I think that's where sometimes the loyalty and trust isn't a, a given because you kind of have to earn it. And, you know, hopefully we're doing that every day. Yeah. And it, it all t- let's tie this all back together to where we started. How do you earn that? Right. And I think you earn it by saying we're producing first rate, great first rate journalism that we think no one else can provide you. That's how you earn it. So uh, I don't think you can fake your way through that. Yeah. Uh, and. Uh, so that ties back to what, where we started, which is what is the goal? Well, that is the goal. It's great first-rate journalism that the Post-Dispatch has done, has been known for, will continue to produce. Because I think that's how we win, how we win ultimately with with building an audience. Yeah. <clears throat> well, I love winning. So <laughs> Something else we definitely want to touch on is um, that you accepted the editor position here after news had broke that a venture capital firm, Alden, was attempting to buy the Post's parent company, Lee Enterprises. Uh, this has become something of a trend in the industry in the past few years. I hate to call it a trend, um, but so is just general consolidation, uh, although maybe less hostile than with VCs. Maybe, maybe, maybe not. Uh, how did you weigh that threat when you were considering taking this job against the opportunity to do good work here in St. Louis? So that happened before I started here. I was aware of it, obviously. You know, our company, Lee, fought against it, pushed it back, and it did not happen, it did not go through. Does that emerge as a factor in the future? I don't know. If I knew the answer to that, I'd probably be a (laughs) multi-billionaire somewhere right now. Uh, So there are so many things for us to worry about (laughs) in the news industry, in the work that we do here. And that, to me, is not something that any of us in this room can predict or control. And even if it were to happen, what would be the real ramifications or consequences? It's not entirely clear. Um, To your point, in the newspaper industry, there's been um, a lot of consolidation. I came from a company that was currently the largest company, newspaper company in the country, Gannett. So that was also a publicly traded company. So... You know, I'm not spending a lot of time worrying about it mm-hmm. uh, because there's no point. And so I'm more focused right now on are we doing great work and how can we do great work? That's a more interesting way to spend our time. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I think it also can't be the thing that takes your focus away from that good work. Right? Exactly. Because uh, you can't live in that space. <laughs> exactly. And it's one of the, the stark realities of our business that 
the advertising revenue isn't there the way it used to be. And we are frankly doing more with with less. And I think there's a lot of questions there about how do you prioritize and and we've asked some of those to you already about how to prioritize and, and what changes need to be made and a lot of that is a reaction to the realities of our business well two things i'll say to that yes it's been a very challenging you know 20 years in the industry i think all legacy media is struggling with these questions yeah we, we are not alone here by any stretch of imagination and it's because the landscape is changing so quickly. But I will also say that I think we still have the largest newsroom in the area. Uh, so that's that's nothing to shake a stick at. And I will also say, as I've said before, we're doing great work and we're going to continue to do great work. So yeah, those are things we can control. Yes. And uh, that's going to be the focus. Yeah, my hope is that, you know, when I was in high school, I'm a native St. Louisan, so I grew up here and was on my high school newspaper, and my goal was to work someday at the Post-Dispatch, and my hope is that there are high schoolers now, I've recently met some of them from Webster Groves High School, uh, who have that same goal, and the work won't look the same, you know, their expectation for what the job will be likely has changed, uh, since certainly since I was in high school, but it's exciting to know that there is still, um, you know, that dream amid kind of the reality, as Beth said, of the industry. I had the same dream. <laughs> oh, well, we did oh, it. We, are we did so, win. We're, we're winners. We're so yeah. we're so cute. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yes, I definitely don't cringe at us. <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> Alan, could you talk a little bit about uh, your family and some of your experiences here to, to go way back to the very first question? You said you you guys all enjoyed living in St. Louis. Mm-hmm. And I f- I'm sorry, how many daughters did or how many children did you say you had? So I have three kids. Okay. So two are in college. One has one more year of high school. Yeah. So when we moved here the first time, it was 2005. Mm-hmm. So they were ages four, two, and basically newborn. Uh, moving to a different city with a newborn is not something I would ever recommend <laughs> to anyone. Not sure what we were thinking. But um, so my kids, their formative years were spent here in St. Louis. It's interesting. Why I, If you ask me what I consider myself, I would probably say Clevelander because that's where I grew up. Mm-hmm. My kids consider themselves St. Louisans. So they're still Cardinals fans. And in fact, last night they dug up <laughs> old photos of themselves from Bush Stadium when they were little with posters and the shirts and the hats, the whole nine yards. Yeah. And my daughter wants to do some sort of Instagram post with this. Give her my number. Yeah, sure. Right? Exactly. (laughs) And uh, so they really have a strong connection. They consider themselves St. Louisans. And even though we moved to Indiana, they never really saw that as the home. They always saw this as home. And we enjoy it. St. Louis is a great place to raise kids. Mm-hmm. It just is. Uh, and, and it is still a great place to live. And so we're excited to be back. Uh, the kids are particularly excited. You know, they're older now and probably not going to spend as much time here, which is good. Um, it <laughs> Time to leave at some point, right? <laughs> uh, but uh, so I think everyone was excited that we were able to land back here. So Yeah, in a and, place that it was home and can be home again. Exactly. Exactly. And what hobbies do you have outside of the newsroom? So it's interesting. I was just talking with someone about this last night. 
So we, my wife and I, were emerging from that chi- that child raising period where you're a glorified chauffeur <laughs> slash fan, uh, <laughs> where you are attending sporting events and theatrical events. And I had a neighbor describe it to me as waking up from a coma almost. <laughs> and you go, now what? What, what happened? And so it's interesting because my kids are now at an age where they're adults. It, it's not the same dynamic anymore. And we're sort of rediscovering our free time. So it's a nice it's a nice place to be. And so we're trying to rediscover old hobbies and old habits. So stay tuned. Okay. I, mean, my, I, might, I might take out biking, actually. Ah, there's a biking yeah. group in the newsroom. There's I know. some reporters that I, go biking I know. together. I'm, I may be crashing that. I'm not sure <laughs> nice. if they'll have me, right? <laughs> so, um, so yeah, we'll, we'll see. I used to play basketball and softball a lot. Uh, do I re-engage with that? You know, we'll see uh, if my body can handle that. Uh, but, you know, so we're we're rediscovering how we use our free time. It's kind of cool, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, kind of yeah. exciting, too, to probably be in a city that has changed a lot since you last lived here and to be able to explore that together uh, as a couple. You know. Yeah, definitely. I mean, yes, aspects of the area have changed and others have not. So you have old haunts, right? And old neighborhoods, old parts of the city that you recognize. And then, yeah, you venture out in some other areas. You go, oh, this is completely different. So it's fun. It's been a fun mix of nostalgia and, and rediscovery. What has surprised you coming back to the area? So um, a couple of things that jump out. One is, while this was always a very dynamic dining scene, it's really interesting to see how the dining scene here has changed. So we're looking forward to trying all kinds of new restaurants here. And Ian Phobes, who is the Post-Dispatch's dining writer, is a great guide. We have a list of 100 of them. We have a list of 100 of the best restaurants. Free plug. You're welcome, Ian. SDL100 um, at sdltoday.com. Mm-hmm. There you go. Uh, sorry, Alan. Brought to you by. Yep, there you go. So I think that'll, that'll be great. But I, I'll tell you what else. I'm excited about the new soccer team. Mm, yeah. um, we have a new soccer team starting. I think that's an exciting new addition to the landscape here. The retail shopping scene has changed dramatically. When we were here, Chesterfield Mall, because <laughs> the kids were young, right? What's Chesterfield exactly, Mall? Exactly. <laughs> right? Chesterfield Mall. Oh. That was like a big deal for us. <laughs> and it's not there anymore. I mean, it is there technically. It's but basically it's an indoor pickleball Right. Court and I know they're trying to reimagine what to do with it. But you look at all the changes just in the retail scene in the area with old standards that have shut down new ways new things that are coming up so that's been that, that's been interesting uh here's what has not changed which is great the cardinals are still good <laughs> so it looks like they have a pretty strong team this year it looks like they can, they can contend when we were here the first time the cardinals won two world series so maybe you're the hope, good luck charm you know right <laughs> so let's hope uh let's hope that's the case uh, and let's hope the Cardinals stay good. But I'm excited about that. So one thing that has not changed, the Cardinals are still good. They still have a strong team. And they are still a massive part of this city's culture and, mm-hmm. and life. And I think that's that's cool. It would be hard to imagine that part changing. Yeah, we have so many dedicated Cardinals readers and uh, our sports reporters and Cardinals beat reporters really doggedly cover the season here and then even in the off season. Yeah. Alan, we've really, really enjoyed this conversation. Are there any last thoughts you'd like to leave us on? No, this has been great. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's been fun. Um, you know, record number of downloads is the goal. So if anyone is still listening to this, you must share. 
Yeah. And why wouldn't you want to share all this fabulous insight, really? Thank you very Thanks much. Thanks for having me. Yeah. I mean, we need to have you on every week just to do some promo. That was great. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> weekly promos, right? Yeah. So, no, thank you no, so much. No, it's been fun. Yep. Yeah.